all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Joining me today is Kathy Warwick. She's a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, and we're going to be making sense of the nutrition headlines that have been popping up all over my feed in the past couple of weeks. If you have a question or a comment about anything nutrition related or something you've read in the media, our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after the news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at UMMC. And joining me in the studio today is just one of my absolute most favorite people in the whole wide world, uh, Kathy Warwick. She is a registered dietitian and a certified diabetes educator, and she helped me rear my little ducklings that wound up (laughs) on my my dock when that happened uh, last year. Um, But you are always a wealth of information, and you cut through the bull and help us see what's actually out there. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because it seems like more frequent over the past couple of weeks, I've seen more and more nutrition headlines um, that are very um, eye-catching because that's what headlines are supposed to do. They're supposed to make you stop and and click on things. But oftentimes headlines can be either slightly misleading or um, they are a generalization of what maybe the actual science says, um, or they kind of just pick part of the science to talk about there. And so what we're going to do, we've uh, we've pulled a couple of um, articles that came across our news feeds this week to talk about the actual science behind some of the nutrition headlines you may have seen out there. And so if you've got a question about nutrition or if there's something that you've seen um, floating around the media, we'd love to hear it today. We may not have the perfect answer for it because if we haven't read it yet, we're going to need to dissect that a little bit. But I'd love to have, um, have your suggestions about articles that we should look at and bring back to you in a future episode um, to dissect that science. So, you know, uh, first of all, Kathy, thank you as always for for coming in to hang with me, hang with me today on a Monday morning. Briefly, kind of how I want to start is something called levels of evidence. And I'm not going to get too down in the weeds in this because that can be a, a heavy topic for a Monday morning and for folks who you know are not scientists. And it really is a whole uh, whole class when you're doing your doctoral work <laughs> or your master's level work is a whole class on levels of evidence. But there are different types of studies. That's what it boils down to. And each one of those studies has 
pros and cons to it. And each one of them also has kind of um, um, different level of um, of impact, right? Because they've been controlled more rigidly. So the the first kind of bottom level of evidence, and I don't say bottom to mean that it's not worthwhile because it absolutely is, is something like a case study or a case report type of um of, of evidence. And that's usually kind of maybe one write up of one particular case, um, you know, especially if we see something rare or an unusual presentation of something, you'll see that written up as a, a case study. But that's usually just one or two people um, in that case study. So, of course, the results of that are what we call less generalizable, right? Just because I saw it in this one person doesn't mean everybody who does something. It doesn't apply necessarily to everyone else. Right. Like me, I'm allergic to um, Advil. Now, when I say allergic, I'm talking about it will kill me. Like the all the my anaphylactic it, type well, reaction. It's actually called Steven Johnson's, and so oh, all yeah. my like my skin separates and like sloughs off and all that kind of stuff. So you could write a case study about me with that, but that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen to every single person who, who takes, takes Advil. Advil, right? right? But it is an, a possibility for some folks out there. Then kind of as we march up the level of evidence, there are things that people may see that are called case control studies or cohort studies. And, and those are kind of middle of the road on, on, the, on the evidence train. And really they're looking at, they're either retrospective, meaning we look back, back at stuff and see what happened, or they can be prospective where you kind of follow a group of folks over time. But what we're doing is looking at maybe the exposure to certain things and then whether an outcome occurred or happened so so a good example of that is like the nurse's health study Mm -hmm. which i really still see lots of research come out of that but nurses were evidently wonderful um study (laughs) study group participants because um they stuck with it for Mm -hmm. a long time many many years and so what different investigators will do is say hey let's look back at this group of nurses who were accurate in their reporting fairly accurate and all and see if they ate yogurt every day right what was their risk of osteoporosis down the road and and so you infer that perhaps eating yogurt every day is a good thing for preventing osteoporosis from from their analysis of the data but it's a look back or like you said maybe even a look ahead of a group of folks and and they still use self-reported data Mm -hmm. which we all know we kind of overestimate things that we exercise and we yes. all and we, we underestimate how much we eat yes. um, kind of across the board. But mm-hmm. um, but it's still it's a really nice mm-hmm. picture mm-hmm. of uh, what might be beneficial for a larger group. Right. Those are often called observational studies mm-hmm. or correlational studies because we can draw correlations between things like it may be correlated that if you eat yogurt, you have less chance of having osteoporosis, but it doesn't mean that the yogurt caused the decrease in that. Right. right. So it's There's not, not a, a cause and effect. Right. So when we're really wanting to get more to the cause and effect and testing out interventions and those kinds of things, that's often when we see it move into more like a controlled 
trial type of um, scenario. And kind of the the highest of, of that type of study is the randomized controlled trial, meaning people are randomly assigned to a group. You know, we don't want to put, um, if we're studying, you know, a meat-based diet versus a plant-based diet, we don't want to p- put people that only like meat in the meat-based diet and <laughs> only people that like vegetables in the vegetable-based diet because you're going to get, you know, some bias there. So, you know, randomized controlled trials are kind of the, the, the top of the, the level of evidence because everything is so tightly controlled in those types of things. So sometimes you'll have um, a study that's really interesting to read and you get to the last paragraph where the authors say, the authors do say that one of the limitations mm-hmm. of this study was they didn't control for exercise or they didn't control for sleep or stress or other things that might cause heart disease. And so the bottom line is you can't have a study that's going to tell us definitively the right answer Mm -hmm. every time. But but we we chip away at it and try to get to the heart of Mm -hmm. what might really be an applicable Mm -hmm. behavior change for the majority of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, especially, you know, when we're dealing with human behavior type of of studies, (laughs) which are really the ones that we're talking about today, especially with nutrition and health, you Um, know, there's there's randomized control trials, which we'll talk about a couple of those today that really, in essence, are giving the people what to eat. Right. right. They're handing them the meals. Right. Less error, less room for error. And I always, you know, I say that. I was like, if I, you know, if I just put people in rooms and fed them a healthy diet, they would lose weight, right? Right. But that takes um, the human factor out of it. What am I going to really do in real life? Right, right. So we've got to strike a balance with what's the best um, scientific evidence from a, these are the best foods to eat into a how do we make that live and work in everyday life, taking in human factors of cravings and stress and not sleeping well. And, you know, my favorite food is this and, you know, all those different types of things. And there's a a balance with that. And then kind of the the very tippy top is something called a meta-analysis, which takes multiple ones of those randomized controlled trials and puts them together and ranks them and takes into account the weaknesses of some, the strengths mm-hmm. of other, and grades the evidence based on the quality of the evidence that's there, and then is able to say, based on looking at all of these randomized control trials, this is what the evidence is pointing us to at that point The in similarities time. that we see with the really good studies. Mm-hmm. And so that, that multiplies the, I guess, the confidence mm-hmm. that you might have that the answer is is right. what interesting the results like it was going to be right <laughs> and so one other thing we always want to look at is you know what where also is this um information being presented you know there are multitudes of journals out there that things can be printed in and there are um, some that are better than others you know that are more rigorous as in terms of their acceptance of things and the the quality of the scientific process that goes in there so anytime you're reading um, health information it's always a good idea to go where did this who did the original study right who where'd this come from Mm -hmm. so you know the majority of the public is not going to sit down and read these scientific journals, and that's okay. But I give props to the the wherever the headline is coming from if they link the article 
in there, you know, right, so if the it's, actual journal article, yeah, so that you can see where the source information came from. Because mm-hmm. if it's something like, um, like the one we're going to talk about today is cell metabolism, that's a big deal journal. Like that is very rigorous, um, highly um, high impact factor, those types of things to look at. Um, so when I saw a nutrition study in something like cell metabolism, I was like, Oh, I got to read that. You know, or the American journal of clinical nutrition, right? That's a know, great one. Another good one. You know, um, American journal of the American heart association, you know, circulation, those types of, of journals are really great. And there is a list. If you're ever curious, you can, you know, kind of Google like impact factors and, and most influential journals. And you'll, you'll see some of the big ones that are out there. So um, that was kind of all heavy um, for very <laughs> early on a Monday. So, um, uh, what I want to do is go ahead and take our first break of the hour. But when we come back, we're going to start tackling some of these uh, headlines, headlines that, that we've <laughs> been seeing. And I think we're going to start with that cell metabolism journal that's about processed food. So if you've got questions or comments about processed food, now's the time. Our number is one mpb ring And my email is fit at mpbonline.org. We'll be back in just a few. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me in the studio today is Kathy Warwick. She's a registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, and we are breaking down some nutrition headlines today. There have been a lot um, that I've been tagged in on, in social media or people um, forward them to me. And it seems like there's been a lot over the past couple of weeks, um, which is exciting. It means that nutrition is getting um, a seat at the table as far as its impact on health. But we've got to not um, be tricked by flashy headlines that may or may not fully um, represent the actual content of the study. So we talked a little bit um, about levels of evidence and how we, um, whether or not we can believe the results that come out or whether there's more studies that need to be done on those types of things. And before the break, I mentioned we're going to talk about processed food and ultra-processed food. So I get a ton of questions from clients about what is it, what is a processed food and does that mean I can't have any kind of processed food so walk me through what it means to be processed well I think the um, current sort of buzzword processed when when the media uses Mm -hmm. it here lately is is really sort of nebulous it it, it means that perhaps I took um, for instance you and I were were talking about you know I took good old two percent milk and I process it into Greek yogurt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Greek yogurt is good for you. Mm-hmm. And Greek yogurt has lots of good health benefits. And, and yet it it went through a process right. of sorts. Right. Now, if I take that same, you know, milk 
and as we talked about, add a, a little weird oil <laughs> or saturated fat of some sort, and then maybe a lot of salt, and then kind of make it into a block, and I call it processed cheese food. Mm-hmm. There's maybe perhaps some concern that what in that processing that was done, I've made it into something that's not necessarily as nutritious. And I've also added extra fat or extra salt to it. So we don't have to worry about um, what I might say, you know, foods coming in their natural form that we might make into a easier form to consume, Mm -hmm. such as oatmeal. You know, oats... um, get processed to some degree they have the grain the husk off the grain and they get you know moistened a little and rolled flat so that when we go to cook oatmeal it doesn't take 45 minutes right but that doesn't mean the oatmeal is no longer nutritious right so so be careful when you read the word processed and look at what they're actually talking Mm -hmm. about are they talking about making a not really a food that you would recognize right it's its original source as easily mm-hmm. versus a food that's just made in uh, like milk made mm-hmm. into yogurt mm-hmm. is a good example mm-hmm. of something that's processed but still healthy mm-hmm. same deal you know thinking about meat you know a steak is going to be minimally processed right and then if you grind it into hamburger meat it's a little bit more processed and it has a little bit of extra fat added into it and then if you then take that meatball uh, take that meat and turn it into maybe a frozen meatball that's in the the freezer section it's even more processed because or it, a hot dog right or or something else you right. know and and so along that processing path you you're adding more fat or adding more salt those are the foods that we really want to pay more attention mm-hmm. to as mm-hmm. far as re- reducing our intake right. and then some things are just processed for safety like passion <laughs> Pasteurization is yes. <laughs> a, is a process, um, but you know it keeps you from dying from you know unsafe food sources. You know, exactly. you know, pasteurizing your milk or pasteurizing juice is not necessarily a, a bad thing, right? Uh, when we look at it, um, it just all kind of goes into thinking about what has been done to this food before it gets to my plate. And, and as a dietitian, you know, I have to admit, I have a garden, I have chickens. You know, I. I like the idea of eating food sort of just about the way it came Mm -hmm. out of the ground or came from the animal. I think that's a really good goal, Mm -hmm. but we can't always do that every time. So we can, we can look at different degrees of Mm -hmm. processing Mm -hmm. and ultra processing, I think is what we, this, this particular um, study Mm -hmm. was about. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So this was um, a study that looked at ultra processed diets compared to um, minimally processed uh, diets. So not necessarily the picture perfect diet. There were some things that um, had some processing done to it, but weren't these ultra processed everything comes out of a package type of, of ready to diet, eat ready to eat things. diets yeah um and I, I mentioned it was in cell metabolism which is a very good um journal out there and it was a randomized control trial mm-hmm. so you know we talked about that being kind of one of the upper levels of of evidence so it was a randomized control trial which is um exciting to see because you don't often see that in nutrition studies it's more observational studies or right. um you know uh, retrospective studies looking back at how people ate and what their ultimate health outcomes were so this was um 20 people so, so small relatively small sample. relatively small sample size <laughs> um but when you think about 
really controlling everything that these people eat, you kind of had to start at a, a smaller size right. from that. And these were inpatient individuals, and um, they were randomly assigned to either be in the um, relatively unprocessed group versus the ultra-processed group. And when I first saw the headline on this, and even the the title of the article, I thought, well, of course... Um, that the ultra-processed stuff was going to be higher in calories than the minimally processed, but they controlled for that. For that, right? they did. So they made sure that even though one particular dietary pattern was going to be minimally processed, they matched it with the ultra-processed in terms of calories and then your macronutrients. So the same percentage from fat, from carbohydrates, and from proteins. So they were they were made up the same, just out of different different stuff. And I like that um, in this particular study, too, they didn't have the food measured out for the participants. Mm -hmm. They told them that they could eat until they were satisfied, done, full, however you wanted to to, to mm-hmm. phrase that. So they didn't actually control the behavior mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot uh, different from from other studies. Yeah, right. In, in it's different than just putting somebody in a box and saying, here's your, here's your fixed you, meal. Right. And you can't have anything else, mm-hmm. you know. So it was very interesting. What, what I think as a dietitian jumped out at me was, yes, the folks, when they were on the two weeks with mm-hmm. the ultra processed foods, um, more of your fast food type things, you know, a hamburger, french fries, something you would recognize as being... Pleasant, mm-hmm. uh, comfort food right. kind of things. They they ate faster, mm-hmm. um, and because probably it just took a little less time to chew, yeah, <laughs> than perhaps veggies and fruit and more of the minimally processed food. So what happened was they ended up eating more calories simply by virtue of the fact that they ate could faster. eat faster mm-hmm. and they could ate more before they felt full. Mm-hmm. So that goes back to the kind of another behavior principle that we've talked about in the past, which is the mindful eating idea, which is not all foods are good and not all these other foods are bad, but how do I approach that eating event? Am I paying attention to and enjoying the food? Am I um, just gulping it down or am I tasting it mm-hmm. and enjoying it? And is it satisfying me? Because we tend to go eat more if we don't feel satisfied. Right, right. Even if our tummies are full, you know, we'll go back for seconds. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it it's an interesting study to me because I think it's true that it's easier um, perhaps for us to eat more calories when it's more processed. Um but it but it was about eating so fast, mm-hmm. and then over time that that adds up calorie wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So spoiler alert: the people in the um, ultra processed <laughs> arm of this study did eat more calories. What I found very very interesting about this as well is that they swapped midway through. They did. So for two weeks, um, you know, the, Group A had the ultra processed diet, and Group B had the minimally processed, and then they switched. So that really took out any intrapersonal um, variation of that. So really added something to it. So regardless of what um, kind of group they started in, the ultra processed was was associated with more caloric intake, about 459 calories on average um, per day with that. And if you if you know um, about calories and weight gain, you know, about 500 extra calories a day is what is needed to gain about a pound a week. (laughs) It'll add a pound or so. Right. (laughs) And, you know, we always wonder if those things 
are really accurate, but let's look at it. So these folks, um, if in the ultra processed diet, also gained about a kilogram, so 0.9 mm-hmm. kilos. So that's about two pounds mm-hmm. in there over two weeks, right? And so mm-hmm. we just said 500 extra calories a day is a pound a week gain, and this was for two weeks two pounds so it really matches and marches out to what the science has told us about caloric intake and weight gain so you know take home from this is we want to strike a balance you know we want to not have all of our meals and all of our snacks be ultra processed but we know that we may not be able to maintain super minimally processed things all the time right but we want to balance those out because we are going to consume more calories when they're ultra processed. There was a, a really popular idea about 30 years ago. You can tell how long I've been practicing dietetics <laughs> if I say that out loud. But it was called the 80-20 rule. Mm-hmm. And I thought I think it's still applicable. Mm-hmm. It, it's like if 80 percent of the time I can do the more minimally processed type meals, more fruits, more veggies, you know, the lean piece of, of, of protein or more plant protein like we've talked about and 20 percent of the time i have to run through you know the fast food place Mm -hmm. and grab a burger um my balance throughout the week or the month or the year it it is going to be okay Mm -hmm. you know i i don't expect perfection and and none of us are going to do that perfectly but but if 80 percent of the time we strive for some you know sort of better choices and 20 percent of the time they're not as great we're still in the end going to do better for our health Mm -hmm. so so don't get discouraged it's not about a hundred percent right right it's about i call it living in the gray right so it's not (laughs) black or white you know because humans we're not really built that way we're not good at that we're not good at all or nothing (laughs) situations because as soon as i tell someone you cannot have, have that ice cream. Don't tell me that, Josie. Lord, all you want is some ice cream. You know, I mean, that's really the way our our brains just are can't like. I'll show you. It. I'm gonna eat some ice cream. You know, and I won't eat just a little bit. No, or we go. Well, I'm gonna eat um, one of these processed diet versions of this food. But in reality, we it doesn't satisfy us as well, and Mm-mm. so we wind up either over consuming that amount and still feeling unsatisfied and then going and eating some real ice cream, you know, or just um, eating multiple things then to try and to satisfy that craving. Right. So, you know, a little bit is better than blowing Mm -hmm. it out in something that's completely artificial and and not. And I think the other thing about the 80 20 idea is I, I hear patients say this all the time. Well, on Monday, I had to go to this luncheon, and they had dessert, and I ate dessert, and I so I blew my diet, oh, gosh. quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, heck, you know, I've blown it, so I'll start over next Monday. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just go way off the rails for right. that whole week. And instead of just saying that was one eating event, one dessert, you didn't blow it, just get back on your Mm-hmm. routine and forgive yourself and don't worry oh, it's gosh, not a thing yes. you even have to forgive yourself for just just enjoy it and then and then go the rest of the week kind of back to your 80 20 rule you can live that way mm-hmm. you, the all or nothing is almost impossible yeah that's why it really bothers me when i see foods touted as guilt-free i know I'm like, <laughs> why should we feel guilty all my food <laughs> is guilt-free like i don't sign moral vir- virtues to food like you just 
eat this food and then, you know, maybe it wasn't the best choice for me right now, but I'm not going to guilt myself into then eating my feelings because that that happens with folks. It does. All right. So that was a very cool study. Very interesting. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about energy drinks because that <laughs> study is pretty cool as well if you've got a question about processed foods that we've talked about or energy drinks that are coming up or anything nutrition related we're happy to take those today numbers one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four we'll be back in just a few This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Joining me today is Kathy Warwick, registered dietitian and all-around awesome individual. And we've been talking about research studies today and uh, nutrition headlines that can be somewhat misleading if you just read the headline. And we're happy to take your questions or comments about nutrition today. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Now, we're going to talk about energy drinks, but before we get down into the weeds with this next um article we do have a caller on the line so we're going to go to um jackson and talk with scott hello scott hey how are you doing we're great how are you uh, i have a question um okay what, what kind of person eats to gain weight I, i'm i've lost about maybe 15 pounds in the last six months with my doctor that did blood work they didn't find anything wrong anything abnormal so i made an appointment to see a gastroenterologist okay there's something else going on but uh, what can i be doing to gain weight I don't eat as much as I did maybe a year ago. I know that. Mm-hmm. I don't eat hot, hot. And maybe I'm not why I'm losing weight, but what kind of food can I help me gain weight? Okay. Well, first, I want to piggyback on what you said about you've, you've seen your health care provider, because anytime we have folks who um, lose weight in a relatively short time span. Unintentionally. Unintentionally, meaning we're not actively, you know, restricting calories or increasing our exercise, then we always try and look for why this might be happening. You know, do we have an endocrine problem like thyroid issues that are causing that? Undiagnosed Um, diabetes. Right. Undiagnosed diabetes can do that. And then also in that category of things are types of malignancies as well. Um, So those are always things that we want to have looked at. So you said you've seen the doctor, they've done blood work, looks okay. And you're getting in to see a gastroenterologist, which would be a great next step for that. So barring any abnormalities that are found if we just want to gain weight kathy how do we do that healthy because it's not pizza and french fries right right a lot of times people think well let me just go for the highest calorie sort of things i can do which tends to be more of those ultra processed Mm -hmm. foods we were talking about but in in terms of that um the adding some of the healthy fats to your diet scott and i think that that depends upon whether you have any gastric issues with like does your stomach bother you if you eat say a handful of nuts or um, if you use peanut butter with an apple for a snack you know the peanut butter is a heart healthy fat but it's also a lot of calories in a small volume 
if you get full real fast, a lot of times then, you know, adding those healthy fats. I don't mm. know if you like um, avocados or when you're mm. cooking, you can add Avocados are my jam. I love those things. I can eat a whole one by yes. myself, which is a lot of calories. So, um, you know, adding nuts, adding um, those those heart healthy fats, say like olive oil when you're cooking or canola oil when you're cooking. Um, sauteing things using that mm-hmm. um, extra uh, the lean the the healthier proteins can kind of help you get back some of the muscle you might have lost in this last time mm-hmm. with your weight loss sometimes when we lose weight that's a little nebulous did right we, did we lose bone weight did we lose muscle weight did we lose fat weight or my yeah. favorite i just lost water weight yeah yeah <laughs> And that can be true too. Yeah. We can get dehydrated, but but I think just a good healthy balanced diet where you're emphasizing, you know, not not cutting back on anything, but emphasizing um, things like peanut butter and nuts and heart healthy fats and avocados and those kinds of things added to your food. It, it's um, it's actually tougher to gain weight for some people than it is mm-hmm. for some people to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And and um, I don't meet a lot of patients looking to gain weight. Most of my clientele is, is trying to lose. Right. So you're, you're sort of in the minority mm-hmm. there. But mm-hmm. it, it's more about um, kind of and making time to eat, giving yourself um, a relaxed atmosphere to eat in. Because a lot of times, you know, you're rushing or you're grabbing a snack and then you don't really feel hungry for Mm -hmm. a meal. And maybe you're not really eating a sort of a balanced diet throughout Mm -hmm. the day. But but that's hard when you have a work schedule that's crazy or Mm -hmm. things like that. But try the best you can to get some kind of a routine. And then, um, you know, eating more real foods at regular meals as opposed to maybe kind of living on snacky foods through the day right and you know sometimes it's trial and error Mm -hmm. on that you know um, some folks do better if they eat three um, kind of larger meals and some folks that have kind of what we call early satiety meaning they kind of get full soon do better with spreading those out into smaller meals again avoiding kind of the snacky type foods and really making them small balanced meals right where we've got fruits and veggies we've got um some type of lean protein whether that be uh, you know a meat-based protein or whether that be beans or legumes or lentils nuts like you mentioned somewhere in there and then those healthy fats that we add in there um as well smoothies sometimes can also be helpful um Mm -hmm. i see that a lot in patients who um um, are on chemo and things like that, where the, the chewing and the swallowing is just not it's not appealing to them. But drinking right. might be and a better in that option. Case, you know, you'd use whole milk and mm-hmm. you'd use the higher calorie, perhaps Greek yogurt mm-hmm. and those kinds of things to make those smoothies. Mm-hmm. Um, add peanut butter to the smoothie. Mm-hmm. Do some interesting things with um, you know those mixtures. Mm-hmm. But make sure the foods that you're adding to your diet are um, not just heavy in calories, calories, but also have the nutrition that goes along with that, the vitamins and minerals, fiber, all of those things that it's going to take to build uh, build healthy body weight and muscle, not just adding sheer just pounds, empty calories, you know, as, as I say. Because yeah. that's going to tend to concentrate around the midsection and deposit around the organs, and then we're going to have more issues with, um, with heart disease from that perspective. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was an excellent question. 
All right, so these energy drinks. So um, I saw a, a headline came across, and it said, energy drinks increase strokes by 500%. That's a pretty um, <laughs> bold statement and very eye-catching as well. Now, when I clicked on that link, it took me to a um, British news site, um, and I could not find the actual Original study, study <laughs> that was was touting this, um, this statistic. So I... I puddled around on um, on the internet looking for a study that does talk about this. And there's a very recent one. So 2019 um, in the Journal of the American Heart Association. So again, a, a nice um, peer-reviewed journal that uh, took um, folks, and it was a randomized control trial as well. So it took folks and it um, put them into groups, uh, three groups actually. Two of them received energy drinks. One of them did not. Okay, and so the the two energy drink groups varied by the brand of of energy drink. And I do not know the brand. It does not tell you the brand um, of that on there. But so two different brands of energy drinks, and then one group not receiving any any type of um, energy drink. They were getting drinks. They just didn't know that they weren't energy, energy drinks, drinks, right? Um, and they had them consume 32 ounces, okay? And so that kind of sounds like a lot, but when you think about the size of an energy drink, most of them are around 16 ounces in that little mm-hmm. can. Um, and so that would be two of those, so two 16 ounces, and in about an hour is what they had them do. So again, a, a relatively um, quick consumption frame, uh, yeah. of this, but I've seen folks throw them back and do it, you know. And so what they were really looking at was a couple of things. They were looking at, did this affect blood pressure? And did this affect affect something called the QT interval? Now, the QT interval is probably not something that a whole lot of people have heard about, but it's it's one of the things that we can look at on an EKG. It's um, one of, part of the electrical pathway of the heart. And when that interval starts to get longer, we have an increased risk of having abnormal heart rhythms, which then can lead to heart issues, mm-hmm. arrhythmias, heart attacks, those types of things. And so um, looking at these these energy drinks, they it did show that we had a kind of a modest increase in blood pressure. I actually... Going into this, thought it would have been higher. Me but too. It, yeah, Me too. but you know, systolic blood pressure, so that top number went up about five points, um, and the uh, diastolic or the bottom number on the blood pressure went up about four points um, over placebo. Uh, so the group that didn't um, didn't drink an energy drink. So that that's very modest elevation in there, um, not as as big as I had uh, anticipated it to be. What was um, pretty impressive was the effect that it had on that that number that qt interval and so looking at those energy drinks it increased it by about six to seven milliseconds depending on the brand now i know folks are thinking six to seven milliseconds like that you can't even can't even blink that fast you know (laughs) um but when we look at it in the context of what that means clinically it's pretty impressive so there are medications out there that that lengthen the QT interval. And we have black box warnings on those things. And a black box warning is something for the prescriber to go, wait a mm, second. Let I don't, me think about this. Are you sure you want to give this person this medication? Because we know it increases the risk for this. Um, of late, there's been several antibiotics that have um, been said to prolong the QT interval. So we really, um, you know, I don't use those in folks who have heart issues or have this congenital issue that prolongs the QT interval. And in the last year or so, too, um, it's been a requirement of new diabetes drugs Mm -hmm. for um, the manufacturers to test 
those drugs as far as their cardiovascular mm-hmm. risk profile as right. well. So we're mm-hmm. we're trying to be more aware of that with all of our drugs. But right. to your point, um, I can go buy energy drinks off the shelf. Right. They're not a prescribed medication. Right. right. <laughs> and so the the amount that some of these medications that were, are now required to have warnings on them is comparable to the the lengthening of the QT, the six milliseconds. So these are not benign drinks. These are not things to just make us power through um, the end of our day or the beginning of our day, you know, to get us up and get us started. Um, Now, there are limitations of this study, of course. You know, it doesn't take into account the other properties that are in the energy drinks. So it may not just be the caffeine that's in those. They typically have other... um, Stimulants right. in them as well. Yeah. You know, could so, be an herbal thing even. Right. So we don't know exactly what it is in there. And then, again, what's the, the dose relationship, right? So if you don't drink um, 32 ounces in an hour, you know, which is <laughs> a lot, you know, d- does that still cause a problem if you drink 16 ounces in an hour, you know? And there are some smaller studies out there that look at those types mm-hmm. of things. But as far as randomized control trial, this has given us some pretty good um, evidence to at least think before we drink you know? and i think this was um the the author said they kind of prompted to study this based mm-hmm. on um kind of increase in emergency room right. visits for these kinds of complaints right you know, palpitations feeling and, the heart yeah. flutter and and sort of having the symptoms that mm-hmm. you're talking about and um and then linking the, some of those er visits to to an overconsumption and and again we talk about everything in moderation a lot Mm -hmm. and like you said dose relationships Mm -hmm. are important Mm -hmm. so um, not everyone would respond that way but if you were born with um, an abnormality in that qt wave Mm -hmm. of your heart or if you already had high blood pressure um, then this might might make a difference for you or if you're on some of those medicines that prolong it as well so it's it's not it's the big picture big picture big picture but but it still makes you think um or think, should should, should make, make you, you think. think kind of what am i putting in my body right. and how might it affect um, my heart and my health long term right all right we're going to go ahead and take our last break of the hour and we're going to talk about um the big one that i've saved until the end <laughs> the white meat red meat debate and is one better for cholesterol over the other we'll be back in a few moments if you've got a question our number is one mpb ring This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. Uh, Kathy Warwick, registered dietitian, is with me today. And we've been kind of wading through some nutrition headlines and trying to debunk some of the stuff that's out there and point to what the science 
actually says. Um, and we've done some great ones. We've done energy drinks and ultra processed foods. And I hope we'll get to um, red meat and white meat. But we do have a couple callers. And I always love hearing from listeners. So let's go um, to Tupelo and talk with Chris this morning. Hello, Chris. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Sure. What can this we help you with? Little, this may be a little off topic, but I was diagnosed in December with diverticulitis. Okay. It put me in a, it put me in a hospital for three days. And uh, I'd had some trouble before, but um, just passed it off as bad food or something. Mm-hmm. And I just recently got over another bout with it. It, it didn't hospitalize me, but it, I had to go on antibiotic, which I don't like to do. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping maybe they've done some studies somewhere about what specific foods to, or what specific diet to go on to um, uh, to keep from having another attack because they want me to do surgery if mm-hmm. I have another one. Right. Well, interestingly. Um Gastroenterologists have sort of changed their minds here, and nutritionists as well. We we used to preach um, be very careful about nuts and mm-hmm. seeds and strawberries and popcorn and things that they could get stuck in those little pouches, stuck in right? The pockets and and now they're kind of looking at that perhaps those things don't really influence the occurrence of of diverticulitis as much as they thought in the mm-hmm. past so they're not really advocating a specific diet i will tell you that i talk to clients though that say i do not eat strawberries mm-hmm. because every time i do i seem to have a flare mm-hmm. and so again in medicine we we know that everybody's different and so um it's hard to say you know a specific diet i think in general we want to eat enough fiber. We want to keep all the g- contents of the of the colon moving through there at a at a good rate. You know, if you're fighting constipation and then you have diarrhea, then you know, sort of finding a way to get a good balanced diet so that you know you have those good regular bowel habits. You may even need to add some um, soluble, like a fiber supplement, mm-hmm. like a. I hate to call any names, but like a supplement that that's clear and doesn't make a gummy drink. <laughs> it's like we're playing charades. Yeah, with, I'm, with I'm gonna try to tell you what I'm saying without calling the <laughs> the brand name. But um, you know, a, a supple a fiber supplement that perhaps you can add to any beverage. Mm-hmm. You may want to add that a couple times a day. You may want to um, watch you know your diet as far as how much fat you're yeah. eating because that definitely slows the bowel down and. You know, just the idea of creating a healthy gut microbiome, um, the the natural bacteria that live in the gut have a lot to do with how fast food moves through the gut. So, you know, adding things that have a probiotic or an active culture like a good yogurt to your diet daily, there there are some things like that that may really make a difference for you. Um, But it's a science experiment that you kind of have to do on your own Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you might be different from your neighbor who's had diverticular. Right, right. And there are um, GI-specific dietitians as well um, that work with, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and diverticulitis and those types of things. You know, never hurts to ask your um, GI doctor if they have a a favorite in town because they usually have made uh, made partnerships with those folks to get a little bit more um, tailored individual meal plan for you um, out there for that. All right, Chris, I hope that helps, and I hope you get to feeling better soon as well. All right, very quickly, we're going to go to um, Ocean Springs and talk with Delilah. 
Yes, ma'am. All right. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, we're just great. What can we do for you today? Um, well, you guys were talking about just different um, lifestyle and diets and everything, mm-hmm. and um, we've been looking into intermittent fasting as a uh, diet lifestyle, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts on that was. All right. Kathy, you got some, some thoughts on intermittent fasting? I actually got to hear kind of a point-counterpoint discussion at a national meeting recently about this topic, and I think it was very interesting because... Um, my takeaway from it was, in general, people will limit the amount of time that they consume foods through the day. Perhaps they only eat for eight hours or 10 hours. You know, that's their window. And then they'll go the other 14 hours, perhaps, with without eating anything. And, and I think immediately my dietitian brain went to, well, if my eight or 10 hour eating uh, window is from, say, nine to five or six in the afternoon, and then I don't sit in front of the television and eat a bag of chips and a, and a, and a mm-hmm. pot, you know, a handful of cookies and, you know, maybe eat until midnight mm-hmm. snacking, mm-hmm. then, yeah, I would most likely lose weight. Right. And so I, th- I think it boils down to um, being mindful again of what you eat and when you mm-hmm. eat and do you stay up really late at night and snack. And, you know, so changing some of those habits may be just as effective as sort of trying to set really strict, hard and fast rules about I'm only going to eat this many hours of the day. I do think that we kind of tend to eat for 20 out of oh, we, we eat all the time four yeah. hours in a day a lot of times because our lifestyles have changed mm-hmm. and we don't get enough rest and sleep and we we do stay up late and that kind of thing but look at your whole day's um, kind of typical day for you and and see how that would fit with your family mm-hmm. and with your work and your lifestyle i don't think there's anything wrong with um you know, cutting back on some of that late night eating or the um, mindless eating that we might do. But um, well, my question is really not, uh, well, it's weight loss is kind of the side effect mm-hmm. of it, I suppose, mm-hmm. but really right. it being more of a lifestyle choice for um, health longevity through, um, I've been doing a lot of research into the specifically like the body reaching cell autophagy mm-hmm. during right, those right. fasting times mm-hmm. and reducing your chances of like cancer and right. heart disease and, right. and, and diabetes and just like everything. Yeah. And there's some really good information about that out there. I think the problem that we have is that some people touting the intermittent fasting are saying, eat whatever you right. want. That was what I was going to say. For that eight hours, it doesn't have to be healthy food or low right. fat or any of right. that. And that's kind of counter to what we really um, want to do long term. Yeah. You know, more of the nutrient rich, um, healthier foods and then just being yep. aware of those yep. extras yep. that we might. And Delilah, I'm happy to get you some more information if you want to send me an email to fit at mpbonline.org. I'll be happy to send you my thoughts on intermittent fasting and how you can live healthy for a lifestyle. So thank you, Kathy. We're almost out of time and we oh, didn't shoot. even get to talk about red meat, white meat, but that's okay. We'll get to it in the future. <laughs> thank you guys for listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. Tune in next week and every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. Thank you.